It's Tuesday, November 16th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Former congressman from El Paso and Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke has thrown his hat in the ring again, this time into the Texas governor's race. He has an uphill battle in a solidly red state that hasn't chosen a Democratic governor since 1991. And there is also a wild card factor if actor Matthew McConaughey chooses to run. David Siders, national political reporter at Politico, joins us for O'Rourke's announcement. Next, President Biden and his administration have had a messaging problem when it comes to inflation, coronavirus, and Afghanistan. And it's causing Democrats to worry whether he is underestimating the scale of the challenges we face in the country. Constant rebranding of legislative priorities have also made it tough to gain traction, all while approval ratings keep dropping. Tyler Pager, White House reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for what to know. Finally, phone notifications are driving people crazy. The constant pings and chirps are causing distractions as their communication has become more fragmented. Work and personal messages are blurring together for a nonstop flow of distractions, and when we lose our focus, it can take an average of 25 minutes to get back on track. Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how it can be hard to get anything done. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I want you to be part of this campaign. And whether that begins today with a campaign contribution or signing up for a volunteer shift or just committing yourself to talking with your friends and family about how important this election is, I want you on the team and I want to win this with you. Joining us now is David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. Thanks for joining us, David. Hey, good to be here. Let's talk about Beto O'Rourke. He has thrown his hat in the ring for governor, or running for Texas governor. Everybody might remember him. He's a former congressman from El Paso. He ran for the Senate against Ted Cruz, came very close, but he did lose. Uh, and then he was also a, a Democratic presidential candidate, bowed out pretty early in that whole process. But there's always been this kind of enthusiasm around Beto O'Rourke. And uh, now he's running for governor there. Uh, so, uh, David, what do we know about all of this? Well, I think this has been expected for, for months and months, uh, but finally pulling the trigger today. And you're right, he has a fan base there that should help him to raise tons of money. And I think the reason Democrats were so excited to have him in the race is because of that fundraising ability. And it gives them a pin, I guess, at the, at the top of the ballot that they hope will help Democrats down ballot. He had a video kind of announcing his uh, his candidacy and all that. He used the electrical grid failure that happened in February, this past February, as a starting point. Basically, you know, calling out Governor Abbott and just saying that, you know, everybody kind of left these people without power. They didn't take care of you. They didn't do what they were supposed to be doing. That was his big starting pitch right there. And I think that's interesting because it'll be a different, if he sticks with this framing of the campaign, a different kind of race than we saw him run, certainly when he was flailing in the presidential race, maybe not at the beginning. But that is a a less ideological campaign. It's going to be tough because people know that O'Rourke for policy positions he took during the presidential campaign. Like, are we going to take away your guns? Uh, The the hell yes comment there. Things he said about energy that don't necessarily play well in in Texas. But I think his, his effort here is to try to paint the incumbent governor, Greg Abbott, is the extremist and to present himself as a common sense solution to that. And for his part, Beto O'Rourke is kind of starting from behind already. I mean, they, I guess there's already a couple polls out. Uh, they have O'Rourke running nine percentage points behind Abbott. 
The Republican governor has a bunch of money already sitting there. And there hasn't been a Democrat to win the governorship since Ann Richards. That was in 1991. Yeah, it's been a long, long time. And, and you know, O'Rourke will be testing this idea that Democrats have had for a long time, at least before the last election, was that you know, the demographics that were rapidly changing and are rapidly changing in that state would, over time, flip to the state Democratic because the just that many more voters of color than Republicans' days were numbered. I think 2020 was a, a lesson that that may not be may not be the case. You saw Trump not only win the state, but you know, improve uh, on his performance anyway in some Latino communities. So this should be an interesting test. You know, it's a, a gubernatorial race, but it was a, probably the best Democrat or the most credible Democrat that the party could put forward. It'd be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, and it's going to be, you know, a lot of big, uh, some of the big topics we've seen you know, being playing out already, obviously, the gun rights thing, but abortion was huge in Texas. Things about, you know, schools and uh, what we're teaching our kids, obviously, all the coronavirus stuff, just huge in that state for all of the different restrictions and laws and everything like that that were going around. So some of these issues are going to continue around. And this is probably what they're going to be hitting on for a majority of the time. One of the other unclear things is Matthew McConaughey, actor Matthew McConaughey has been toying around with this idea of running for governor in Texas. I think at one point he said he would be aggressively centrist if he was going to do this. How does that play into all of this? Well, if he runs, it depends on what he runs as. If he runs as a Democrat or as an independent, that creates a problem uh, siphoning votes from O'Rourke. But I think that, I mean, geez, he's been talking about it forever. I'm, uh, I think that it's not part of the equation yet. And you know, he said something like he's measuring a race. He's been flirting with campaigning, but totally noncommittal. So it's unclear if he'll even be in. And then for Beto O'Rourke himself, as we kind of alluded to in the beginning, you know, he's run a couple of high profile things already and, and failed at them. Right. So he's lost two elections in a row now with all of this. Uh, when he ran for Senate, when he ran for president, you know, the stakes are high for him as well with uh, his political future. I think so. There's some debate among people who follow politics, right, about how many losses a candidate can sustain before they just get branded as a, a loser. And I think so. So some people, because of that, would say O'Rourke should wait, not run for governor and instead take on Ted Cruz in a couple of years again. He already ran close to him. And Cruz is a more polarizing figure than, than Abbott. But O'Rourke does have some you know, mitigating circumstances, I guess, that I, I don't think many people consider his campaign against Cruz to be a failure. It launched his presidential race, after all. The presidential bid clearly was a flop, but it's a presidential bid. And sometimes you can run for president a few times, as we know from our current president, and still be successful. So I'm not sure the door is closed for him if he loses, but it is a risk. David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I know you're tired of the bickering in Washington, frustrated by the negativity, and you just want us to use and focus on your needs, your concerns. Despite the cynics, Democrats and Republicans can come together and deliver results. Joining us now is Tyler Pager, White House reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the Biden administration. Obviously, they're facing a slew of issues that they need to take care of. The rising inflation is just the latest one. But you wrote an article kind of looking at the 
mixed messaging that they've been putting out there since the beginning of the administration, really. You know, it's kind of hurt their credibility in some areas. It's been setting confusing expectations, I think, a lot when it comes to coronavirus. And, you know, they just have not really been able to get it all together. So, Tyler, what are we seeing with this? What I was looking at was some of the communication coming out of the White House and concerns from people inside the party that it has set the wrong tone, been confusing, or minimized problems that Americans are facing. So that runs the gamut, as you touched on, from inflation, which is hitting Americans every day as they go to the grocery store, put gas in their cars, and see rising prices. A few months ago, senior uh, administration officials were just saying it was transitory, which Democrats that I spoke to criticized on two points. One, uh, I spoke to Representative Connor Lamb of Pennsylvania, who's running for Senate there, who said, my constituents don't use the word transitory. That's not a word that makes a lot of sense to everyday Americans. But then two, it hasn't been transitory in the sense that Americans have been feeling these rising prices for months, and they're continuing to go up. Last week, we saw that prices hit a 31-year high. So I think there's there's examples like that, or there's other things like COVID, when Biden said over the summer that the virus was on the run. You know, it was trending in the right direction then, then the Delta wave hit, and we fell into a new fresh wave of COVID. So, you know, when I talked to the Democrats I spoke to acknowledged that it is hard to message around an unpredictable virus and an uneven economic recovery, but they worry that continuing to message in ways like this can be harmful when problems resurface and sometimes more acutely. And one of the things you also mentioned in all of this, kind of in this mixed messaging front, is the constant rebranding that they've been doing with some of the top legislative priorities. When you talk about the Build Back Better plan, which is called, which is what it's called now, was the American Families Plan before. Then it was the Reconciliation Bill. People knew about it. And, and, but people were really just tuned into the price tag versus what it was. And, and that's one of the difficulties always, right, is to sell the American people on what is in the plan but these constant rebrandings just confuse everybody. And, and I think that is the next step, right? So they've had these messaging slip-ups on some of these broader issues, but now they want to make up ground that it's clear from polling that Biden has lost. And to do that, they want to sell the infrastructure bill. And if it passes the Build Back Better agenda, but they've had trouble doing just that. As you mentioned, these bills have changed quite a bit. A lot of Americans support the policies in them but don't necessarily know that they're in the bill or associated with them. For example, the Build Back Better Act is is a really broad term, and there's a a grab bag of Democratic priorities in there from spending to combat climate change to universal pre-K. And so all of those things make it difficult for, or, or the administration has struggled to really nail down a coherent and specific message. And so, you know, in polling that we see and in conversations, the administration and the Democratic Party is not getting the credit that they hope to get from passing what Biden has said is his signature legislation. Yeah, and what we've seen is the approval ratings for President Biden go down. There was a new Washington Post-ABC News poll released on Sunday. He's down to 41% approval rating, 53% disapprove. And, uh, you know, I guess a little more concerning, maybe 51% say that he's not keeping his campaign promises. So, you know, everything that he ran on, basically, over half of the people polled here just aren't feeling it. And I think that is, those are the warning signs for Democrats. Midterm elections for the incumbents or the sitting president's party are notoriously difficult. And uh, Democrats already have very slim margins in the House and Senate. And so there's a lot of anxiety about losing both those chambers uh, in a year from now. 
And I think that is part of why there is this growing sense of concern about the messaging from the White House, that Democrats are uh, excited uh, about what the infrastructure bill they passed and the president is signing into law and optimistic about passing this Build Back Better agenda. But they know that, uh, you know, that will be important in terms of the results that it can deliver. But politically, they want to get the credit for it. And and that hinges on how successful they can message and sell it to the American people. And I think that is where some of these concerns lie. You know, some Democrats are still kind of saying, well, this is all going to work itself out. And that's kind of almost maybe the same problem that you were writing about, right? Diminishing some of the bigger problems, but they think it'll work out, right? They say, you know, by the time this, uh, all this rolls around next year, some infrastructure projects might get started. Inflation might have worked itself out. Supply chain issues might have worked themselves out and we'll be in a different place. I mean, that's like being really optimistic there. I think there's two points there. One is that you're right. The uh, senior White House officials that I spoke to and Democrats I spoke to are optimistic that the conditions will improve. The pandemic will continue to recede. Americans will return to normal. And with that, the economy will also continue to improve. You know, there are positive indicators in the economy, job growth and and the decline of, of, of unemployment, but then also inflation is not as good for the administration, for Americans. I think, you know, they think those things will get better. But at the same time, I spoke to Democrats who, you know, quoted in my article, a mayor in Alabama who said Democrats don't brag enough. They need to be more fervent in their explanation of what they've done and try to take credit for it. He said Republicans are very good at that and the party needs to do a better job. Tyler Pager, White House reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Our attention spans are just kind of shot and we've gotten so used to this constant multitasking and it can be good for some people in in some ways, but overall it really can just tax your memory. Joining us now is Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. Let's talk about all these annoying notifications that are coming up on our phone. Partly it's our fault because we do it to ourselves by signing up for so many apps and services and saying yes to the notifications. But, you know, a lot of it are things that we need to be in the loop on, you know, things happening for work, personal messages. It's all kind of blurring together. And for a lot of people, it's not as easy as just turning off all your notifications. As I mentioned, sometimes you need to have those. So, Rachel, tell us a little bit about it. Especially for work, you really can't do that, right? I, You know, I was talking to one expert and she was like, for many people, if they did that, they wouldn't have a job anymore, you know, for much longer. These kind of constant Slack messages, we've just adjusted to this era of fast communication. And I originally got the idea for the story when I heard this noise coming from I couldn't even tell where it was coming from. I thought it was probably from my computer, but maybe another device. And I couldn't figure out what the source of the notification was. And it it turned out many other people have had this experience, too. And I really think it just has to do with the fact that our communication is fragmented across all these different apps and platforms. And it's just kind of driving a lot of us crazy. Where was that noise coming from in the end? For me, it turned out to be a text message that was mysteriously syncing with my like computer monitor, um, even though I had not actually set that up. (laughs) The the worst thing for me is when your phone is kind of set aside from you and and you see maybe a flash of light, it could just be the light reflecting on the screen or something. And then you think that's a notification. So then you go to your phone and click it and you know, there's nothing there. I get these phantom notifications in my head and that that's the worst one for me. 
but to your point, you know, our or community- the buzzing or the buzzing, right? Like, you I think feel, it's buzzing. I and it's- feel the buzzing in my pocket <laughs> or on my Apple watch now. And that makes me feel like I've really gone off the right. deep end when there's nothing there. <laughs> so with our communication so fragmented in this, obviously it can pose distractions. There was an interesting thing that you put in here. I guess if something diverts our focus, something external diverts our focus, it takes us an average of 25 minutes to get back on track. That is a, a, a huge waste of time. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes we're popping to other projects, you know, so it might not be that that thing distracts us. But I mean, it just kind of goes to the point, like our attention spans are just kind of shot. And we've gotten so used to this constant multitasking. And it can be good for some people in in some ways. But overall, it really can just tax your memory. So what do we do about some of this? Because as I mentioned, it's so hard to just turn off all notifications immediately, completely. And you spoke to a couple people who did take the time to turn them off, but uh, either they went back or, you know, maybe they just uh, chilled out for a little bit. I guess being transparent if you're with work, you know, I know Slack is a huge thing and it kind of demands this immediacy, this immediate answer. I think everybody feels like you got to respond to, but telling people, hey, I'm taking a break. I'm going to be off for a little bit can go a long way. Yeah, the key is to just kind of be transparent about it. So you want to talk to your boss and say, I really just want some more time to focus and really just make sure I'm hunkering with this important, like deep work that I need to be doing. How frequently do you think I need to be checking Slack or email? And then you can set up calendar invites to yourself just to kind of get into the habit. Of, and eventually, you know, you, you won't need those. It'll just kind of be, you know, reflexive for you to track, you know, these three times of the day. I also hear, heard from folks who said this has to come from the organizational level or the team level. This isn't something that you can do on your own. You need buy-in from everyone so that everyone's on, on the same page, that we're not instantaneously responding on Slack and that that's okay. And then beyond that, too, I mean, uh, you mentioned in, you know Apple's mail app can consolidate a bunch of email addresses so that you know, you're getting less notifications possibly or not as many notifications from different apps. That could be a, a possible solution, too. Can check everything at once. Like for me, I think part of it is just constantly toggling between all of these social media apps, personal, professional, all these email inboxes. People are getting hundreds of emails a day across multiple inboxes. And so if you can kind of amalgamate some of that in a program that brings all your email together, or there's also platforms that bring all your social media mentions together, then you're not constantly clicking around all day because that could be really taxing too. And to your point earlier, too, you know, uh, let's say for people like you and me, we're in news and media and whatnot. I have tons of notifications coming through just because I feel I need to keep up with the news, you know, something breaking. That could be tough to reconcile, too. It's uh, depending on the type of work that you're doing, too, is going to also dictate how many tons of notifications you could possibly be receiving. It's true, but you could tell your boss, like, I'm going to focus for these three hours. If something urgent happens, the best way to reach me is via text message or call me, you know, and you can also set up things on your phone so that the, you know, if you were setting up a do not disturb or something, you can set it up so that some things come through or you just know, like, you're going to pay attention to text messages. You're going to turn off your Slack. And so the best way for them to get you is in text on that moment. Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.